Hi, I'm Eddie Faye Gates, Chair of the Survivors Committee of the Oklahoma Legislative Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. This commission was uh, the result of House Joint Resolution 1035 by Representative Don Ross uh, in the House, and uh, he was joined by some other representatives in the House and by Senator Maxine Horn in the Senate. This resolution uh, created a commission. Uh, eleven members were appointed, eleven members to the commission. Uh, three of us were appointed by uh, Tulsa Mayor Susan Savage uh, from a list that was submitted to her of people who would qualify to serve on this commission. I was honored to be one of those chosen. The law, the bill requires that one has to be a survivor of the riot. Our survivor is Joe Burns, who will be here later, and the other commission member from Tulsa, Dr. Vivian Clark. Uh, the others are from all over the state, uh, from all regions, geographic regions of the state. Our consultants, our two major advisors, Dr. John Hope Franklin and Dr. Scott Ellsworth. And there are others who are, were appointed by the governor and uh, others by the mayor to assist. The task of the commission uh, was that we do certain things. Among the tasks assigned, we were to identify persons who were residents of this area. We were to get a more accurate death account, the actual deaths during the ride. We were to identify survivors of the ride and record their testimonies. We were to get a more accurate account of the property losses, uh, insurance records, uh, census records, where people lived, uh, how their property was lost, what happened. We were to um, locate documents missing documents and preserve those documents, physical objects and so forth. And uh, we've been fairly uh, lucky. We, we advertise in the major print media, state, local, and nationally, and we've got a lot of results from those. We also have a website through the Oklahoma Historical Society, and we have uh, gotten a lot of information that way. One thing we have not been able to find is the Bulldog edition of the Tulsa Tribune May 31st, 1921. We're still looking for that. Specific committees. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Mr. George Monroe is going to be our first uh, black survivor. And uh, Mr. Monroe, thank you for coming once again to give us some testimony. Uh, we already have lots of testimony, as you have said earlier, that you've given to us. Today we want to concentrate on the day of the riot, May uh, 31st, 1921, the day after June 1st, and uh, the second, June 2nd, when uh, the, the National Guard did gain control, regain control of the city. So would you please tell us, and we already have on your form your name, your address, your birth date, or where you live, so I, we don't need that, but we need you to describe that day, the riot day. Please tell us about how that affected you and your family. They asked me a lot of questions. I remember what I remember at five years old, and that's my story that I tell. There are some things that I never did 
tell because I thought that maybe they were not important. They were important to me. My neighbor, Mr. Johnson, had a daughter, Arbella, and during the riot, we held hands. We were at the same age. Arbella has passed away now. But we were in the rod holding hands together. They would ask me a lot of questions of where we went. The only thing I can remember that we were holding hands running down Eastern Street. And I remember that, but that's not important to what they want to hear. But all in all, the thing that I remember more than anything is in our house, which was right next door to Mount Zion Baptist Church. My mother was with her family, four children, two boys and two girls. All of us were in the house, and I've told the story over and over again. When we saw coming up the walk in the front of the house off of Eastern Street, four men with torches in their hands, his torches were burning. When my mother saw them coming, she says, you get up under the bed, get up under the bed, get up under the bed. And all four of us got up under the bed. I was the last one and my sister grabbed me and pulled me under there. And while I was under the bed, one of the guys coming past the bed stepped on my finger and I was, as I was about to scream, my sister put her hand over my mouth so I couldn't be heard. Now I remember that. They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtains and set the curtains on fire. And as a result, I, that's how our house first started to burning. Number three, Benice Don Sims. Mrs. Sims was a 17-year-old student at Booker T. Washington uh, the day that the riot broke out. She says they were preparing for their junior-senior prom, and uh, she has many vivid uh, memories of this riot and where she was, how it affected her, how it affected people around, good Samaritans, good white Samaritans who befriended them. She is just a walking... A history book, and she, it's a delight to interview a right survivor with a memory as sharp and alert as hers, and uh, with specific eyewitness details. Mrs. Sam. Up on the Stamp Hill, they were shooting 
from there. And where our home was located on Kenosha in the 800 block, we were out in the backyard. My father came and had us to come in because the bullets were falling out in the backyard. Uh, a friend of his, a white man, named Sandy McMullen, came over to our home and got the family and took them out to his house. He's lived way out on the outskirts of town. I guess that would be, I imagine, somewhere in the vicinity where the new Booker T. Washington School is now back in that vicinity. And we stayed there until after this was all over with. When we came back, nothing but the ground. Home burned down, everything, nothing left. Number 5, April 16, 1999, Mr. Elwood Lett. Uh, Mr. Lett, I'm Eddie Gates, Chair of the Survivors Committee of the Oklahoma Legislative Commission to study the Tulsa Race Right of 1921. And we have uh, talked to you before informally, but today we want to get you on videotape and we have your legal release form and we're carrying out uh, one of the tasks assigned to us by the Riot Commission. We're gathering information today from eyewitnesses to the race riot, and I understand you are one. The history, the documents, all of that is important, and I'm a historian, I've studied this, and we gather valuable information, but nothing takes the place of oral history, the eyewitness accounts of those who saw the history being made, who felt it, who smelled it, who touched it. <coughs> so that is why we're so grateful to you for coming today to share with us. And I understand you have lots of interesting things to share, uh, that you even lost your grandfather in the riot. We know that some people lost property, some lost relatives, and we know that you lost your grandfather. So that's what I'm going to be talking to you about today. After the gunfire, there was, it seemed like there was, um, uh, I guess, been, four or five white folks that came to the house. And my mother and my baby sister and myself, we put us up under the bed. And so it was to keep our mouths shut, don't say nothing. Or naturally, me being one Say nosy, I want still want to know what was going on. And Grandpa, boy, don't you see how your mom said, Keep quiet. <laughs> anyway, after that, somehow he managed, I don't know where Grandpa got the wagon from, or the, the horses or whatever was going to pull us away from there. But I remember very, very clearly the white people that went on because I thought they were going to do some harm to my grandfather there. But nevertheless, looking at him and he being an elderly man, which I was happy to know they didn't shoot him or kill him there at the house. He, they seemed to be pretty nice people by letting us 
get in the way and, and go on about our business. And I can remember what was, you talking about a disturbing moment was when we got to the edge of of uh, Sperry up here. We hadn't got even through the town of Sperry before this white, white guy asked my grandfather, why in the hell are you going? Using the N-word. Mm -hmm. My grandfather said, we're heading out, we're going out of town. And he said, not this day, you're not going out of town. Mm -hmm. Bam! You saw your grandfather get shot? I saw him get shot. Bam! Oh. And he just told me, my, my mother let out a scream, oh, you have killed my father, you killed him. And I thought he was going to do the same thing to my mother, but Fortunately, they didn't kill her or harm her. El Doris, E-L-D-O-R-I-S, that's all together. E-L-D-O-R-I-S. Made, M-A-E. Then Mac Condishi, M C C O N. And is it North? Yes. Uh -huh. C O N. D I C H I E. And how old are you? 88. That's amazing. It is amazing. Okay. You don't look nervous. Mm -mm. And have you lived in Tulsa all your life? Well, since I was four. And all right, and um, so you you were how old at the time of the riot? Nine years old. The day of the riot, we were running. We were uh, the people. I looked my mother when I was awakened by my mother. I was real frightened because she told me what was happening and, and I couldn't imagine that. I just said to her, I, I just got up and was real afraid and she says, we have to go out, get out. I said, she says, the, the white people are killing the colored people. And I just felt that I could see them just lining us up. This going down the line too, but anyway, it, it wasn't that bad. But we had the Millen Valley track was just lined with people going north, mm -hmm. and some were in the head rags, old gowns, because they didn't have any time to get dressed to get out. Even some women left their shoes and was just walking down the track with no shoes on, and it was the. The crowd was just the whole breadth of the railroad track on the sides and down the middle, and they were all going north because they couldn't go south. And so we went um, right over the track off Pine was a small chicken coop, and a lot of people went in there because the bullets were just raining down 
over us. The airplanes was up, just raining down the bullets. And I could see them, and I heard them, and I was so frightened, I pulled away from my parents and ran into this chicken coop with all the other people. And I got into the corner of that, just scared as I could be. But my father came in there, and I had to leave out with him so I could stay with my family. testimony of Ruby McCormick. And Mrs. McCormick, just tell me some of the things we were talking about earlier. What You were nine years old when the riot occurred. Tell me what you were doing, what your family was doing, where you ran to or hid. Uh, just tell me all about the riot. And uh, men came by and told us they had a race riot uh, down there. And so my mother and all they tried to get under the bed <laughs> and my father and myself went to bed and so the next morning that's when uh, my father worked for Curtis Brown a clothing store on Main Street and they came after us the next day white people you know came and uh, and took us we walked around there to Madison down the railroad track and to Ma the next street over, over was Madison and uh, they took us to the convention hall. To Joe Burns, right survivor number 11, April 16th, 1999. And Mr. Burns is our uh, right survivor who is on the Tulsa on the Oklahoma Legislative Commission to study the Tulsa race right. The law requires at least one member be a survivor, and Mr. Burns is our survivor. He attends the meetings. He is a member of the Survivors Committee. And so, Mr. Burns, today what we've been doing is interviewing eyewitnesses, getting a, that's one of our tasks of the commission is to record the testimony of eyewitnesses. And uh, we are asking you to tell us what you know, I know you were young at this time, but you can, you probably, you may remember what happened that day, or you've certainly heard your parents talk about it and others older talk about it. So just tell us what it was like that day, May 31st, 1921, when that ride started, the next day, June 1st, when it accelerated, and finally June 2nd, when the National Guard came in and regained control. And just anything else about that event that affected your family. Ernestine Gibbs, Mrs. Gibbs. And the next morning, this young man came out to my mother. I remember him coming up. He had a gun, and he asked my mother, will you keep my gun while I go with them to help bury the dead? Well, you know, we didn't even, when he came back, didn't even ask him about that. We should have just asked him, but we didn't. But anyway, he went to bury the dead. So there were a group of people that were shot, I could tell. And I guess 
by by noon or somewhere like that maybe the they had the houses and they had the cars. Did you want to go back to your house, to your home? So yes, we wanted to go on back home of the now we at the fairground, you know where the fairground is located. So when we came, you know, you're gonna come right through Greenwood. When we came through Greenwood, there was not a building standing. There was not anything and water was running, you know, water pipes were running and all of that. We walked and we just looked and walked on Greenwood there we stood there a little while and, and I said, because being that age, see about 14, but we're getting close to 15 because I was in ninth grade. I said, I never, ever, ever come to Tulsa again. I thought as soon as I get out of that, the best thing, get going away from here. And uh, so then we went on out to where we lived, out to King Street. And of course, all the way out, everything was burnt, you know, everything, of course. Mr. Joe Burns, right, survivor number 11, April 16th, 1999. And Mr. Burns is our uh, right survivor who is on the Tulsa, on the Oklahoma Legislative Commission to study the Tulsa race right. The law requires at least one member be a survivor, and Mr. Burns is our survivor. He attends the meetings. He is a member of the Survivors Committee. And so, Mr. Burns, today what we've been doing is interviewing eyewitnesses, getting a, that's one of our tasks of the commission is to record the testimony of eyewitnesses. And uh, we are asking you to tell us what you know. I know you were young at this time, but you can, you probably, you may remember what happened that day, or you've certainly heard your parents talk about it and others older talk about it. So just tell us what it was like that day, May 31st, 1921, when that ride started, the next day, June 1st, when it accelerated, and finally June 2nd, when the uh, National Guard came in and regained control. And just anything else about that event that affected your family? Well, there was a lot of commotion around, I remember. And we didn't see Dad anymore for a couple of days. Because I heard later on what had happened to him. They had taken him out to the, what is it now called, it's a, Whiskey store down there. It used to be called the Fairground. In Magnolia. In its Magnolia Park. Mm -hmm. But that's where they took him. And he was he was a bunch of uh, Negro men down there. And they left him there in that park for a couple of days. Mom was working for a white family. She got in touch with them, and they went down and, and got him out and brought him on back to the home. By that time, we had got back into the house. On Latimer Court. I wondered if we were going to live there for a while, but didn't get a chance to work that out because uh, the man that owned the house came over and told Dad that he was going to have to have the house. 
because they said his house of fire, he was next door. Wow! He had a lot of good fucking furniture, piano and stuff like that, you know. So they just said he did a fire. And uh, they didn't have time to build a house for him, but they gave, gave him a pyramidal tent. So they were living in tent, and we were living in his only rent house. <laughs> so, so that affected you, you had to move out. Yeah. <laughs> so he told Dad, well, it's going to be winter pretty soon, so I guess Brother Burns, we better, man, my son and I, if you get the lumber, we'll build you a house so that you get in it before the winter. And Dad had gone down and talked to a carpenter, to a carpenter but the carpenter wasn't available, so he, looked, he talked to a, the uh, fellow that sold the lumber. I think his name was C.D. Vaughn. And Vaughn told him he would uh, let him have enough house, to, enough lumber to build him a house, but he had to finished the carpenters himself because he didn't have any. And sure enough, the fellow that was a Jones, the old time Tulsa was living out there that we were renting from, he got his his nephew and they went out there and built us a three-room house in about about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't have any two, didn't have inside to it, you know. They built a box house and they didn't have any sheetrock, things like that. They just covered the outside and put the roof on it and they did it in about three weeks. And of course, later on, you know, after the riot was over, and he began to make more money. He got the uh, sheetrock, hell hole in there, and he and his friends put the inside, uh, the the, the sheetrock in, and gave made it double, double, double wall to protect the kids. But just the same, my sister caught. Uh, she got very, very sick during the time because she. She came down with typhoid fever, and they thought she had pneumonia, but it was typhoid fever. And she didn't recover. She died from oh. that. She died in the first of 22. The interview today is with Myrtle Rollison. She is the widow of Lloyd Reed Rollison, who was a prominent Tulsa uh, pharmacist. Uh, business owner at a grocery store and uh, she herself is not a survivor of the riot she lived in uh, Oklahoma but not in Tulsa at the time of the riot but her husband did and she is his widow and heir uh, she's going to tell us about Lloyd Reed Rollison uh, about the property they own what happened to it the day of the riot how it affected their lives uh, where they hid during the riot those kind of things so, uh, Mrs. Rollison, thank you for sharing this information with us today. Okay. Uh, Lloyd Reed Rollison, my husband, uh, lived with his family at 521 North Greenwood in a two-story building. Uh, they had a grocery store downstairs and a rooming house upstairs. There were three girls and a boy. The riot was on the west side of Greenwood, and 521 is on the east side of Greenwood. So the, the building was not burned, but they suffered the fear and everything that went along with it. Uh, Reed said he hid in the icebox, and his uh, brother-in-law, at that time was not his brother-in-law, his sister's boyfriend, hid in the doghouse. And incidentally, 
it frightened my brother-in-law so much until he moved out in the country right next to the, uh, the junior college. Um, Reed said it was terrifying. Uh, his mother was one of the founders of Christ Temple CME Church and it was very traumatic for her because she helped rebuild Christ Temple. Christ Temple was located on Frankfurt at the time. And uh, it was four years after uh, they rebuilt, uh, they built the Christ Temple that it was burned. And with the excitement of uh, having a new church and having to sponsor activities to build a new church, uh, she suffered to the extent that one night she was giving a speech at Christ Temple and fell dead with a heart attack. We felt that all of that came from the trauma of the riot. You just listened to some of the dozens of interviews of Tulsa Race Massacre survivors conducted by historian and author Eddie Faye Gates. The interviews you just heard were recorded by Jay Cavan Ross of the Greenwood Tribune, who also participated in some of those interviews. I started this podcast in order to offer an easy, accessible way for people to learn about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. When I began to study the massacre and understand the magnitude of this tragedy, initially I experienced a bit of shock upon realizing how much history was wrapped up in this one event and how many people were unaware of it. To suppress information, withhold or hide it from someone is to deprive that person of knowledge. And I felt deprived of knowledge. It wasn't enough to teach myself. What good does that do? I wanted to share it with others who would want to know about it if they knew it existed. Being a journalist makes me a storyteller of sorts. Every story has a beginning, middle, and an end. My aim here was not to convince listeners of anything, but I did want to give listeners the information and tools to interpret the events before, during, and after May 31st to June 1st of 1921 for themselves. This story will have different meaning for different people. As it should, we all have different life experiences. But what I hope everyone takes away from this series are two things. One, that the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is very much emblematic of the Black experience in America during this era. And two, that the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is just as much a part of American history as the Civil War, the establishment of the Constitution of the United States by the Founding Fathers, the women's suffrage movement and the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote, World War I, World War II, the first American spacewalk by astronaut Ed White, the civil rights movement, the landing of Apollo 15 on the moon, Apple's creation of the first Macintosh personal computer, the Major League Baseball strike that led to the World Series being canceled, the September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001, and the Great Recession of 2008. To be clear, there have been a great number of people who've been banging the drum about this story for decades. While I couldn't highlight all of them, what I hope to do was elevate the voices of some of those people, people who are experts in the subject matter and who have made it their mission to give this story a place in history that it is deserving of. We've heard from guests, massacre survivors, descendants of survivors, and other experts about how important it was for African-Americans in Tulsa to arm themselves with knowledge, with education or knowledge in business, or maybe even a trade, all in an effort to carve out a better path for themselves, their children, and the future of their community. 
The Emancipation Proclamation had only been issued 58 years prior to the Tulsa Race Massacre. That means 58 years before the massacre, when slavery was still the law of the land, it was a crime for Black slaves to read or write in many places, and it was a crime for anyone to teach them. It's easy to see why being able to read and write and elevate one's station in life took on even more importance. Many Black Tulsans believed that gaining an education would give African Americans some of the rights and American liberties that they thought would provide a path toward upward mobility. There has been one voice in this series who has consistently made this point time and again, someone who made it her mission to reveal the truth about the Tulsa Race Massacre, Eddie Faye Gates. I've mentioned her a number of times. She's the voice you've often heard when we've played recordings of interviews of Tulsa Race Massacre survivors, including in the beginning of this episode. According to a 2013 Tulsa World article titled, Tulsa historian to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, Gates is well known for her efforts to preserve the history of North Tulsa and Black Tulsans. Quote, during the late 1990s and early 2000s, she recorded hundreds of interviews with survivors of Tulsa's 1921 race riot and their families. End quote. One of the men behind the camera during many of these interviews was Ross, who I mentioned earlier is the son of former state representative Don Ross, who represented Greenwood for many years. It is because of the many, many hours Gates, Ross, and others spent documenting the experiences of massacre survivors that I'm able to share them with you on this podcast. In many of these interviews, Gates highlights the strong work ethic of Tulsa's pioneers and the obstacles they had to overcome to get an education for themselves and in many cases to provide one for their children. Perhaps Gates consistently emphasized education in her interviews with survivors because she knew what the alternative was. According to an entry about Gates in the Oklahoma Department of Libraries' Digital Prairie online database, quote, Eddie Faye Gates was born in Preston, Oklahoma, to a family who worked as sharecroppers. From an early age, she learned to work hard for little money by picking and chopping cotton with the rest of her family. Her mother, however, was the first to ingrain in her children the necessity of higher education. After Gates graduated from Dunbar High School in 1951, she accepted a scholarship to attend the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, but left after three years. She then was accepted into a social studies program at the University of North Dakota, where she received her undergraduate degree. Later, she went on to receive a degree in history from the University of Tulsa. After leaving the University of Tulsa, Gates began her career in education by accepting a social studies teacher position at the Tulsa Public Schools. Her career in education, which would last 22 years, culminated with her position as a curriculum supervisor for the district. End quote. It goes on to say that after retiring, Gates became active in social advocacy groups, as well as serving as a political appointee on the Oklahoma Commission that studied the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. It also mentions her books, which reflect the life in a very tumultuous and divided Oklahoma, which Gates experienced firsthand growing up Black and poor in racially charged Oklahoma. I want to add some context to the point about sharecropping. In this book, Slavery by Another Name, Douglas A. Blackman documents how many of the slaves that existed at the end of the Civil War were kept in bondage through various mechanisms, such as convict leasing and debt peonage. Convict leasing was the result of Southern laws that were crafted to guarantee that free African-Americans would be incarcerated at much higher rates than whites. 
Debt peonage or debt servitude, on the other hand, was a system by which Blacks were typically accused of falsely owing money, given sham trials, and then swiftly sold by the courts into a privatized system of debt slavery sustained through peonage contracts with pretty horrible terms. They allowed the employer to trade, confine, even beat the workers as long as the debt was deemed unpaid, which would in many cases practically last forever. Though sharecropping, on the other hand, was a far less extreme form of forced labor, it still was a hard life. Poor Black farmers received a percentage of the profits, at least in theory, from sale of a certain crop that they grew. However, workers were often forced to take out large loans to meet daily expenses that carried interest rates of upwards of 50, even 60 percent or more. Many sharecroppers were often treated like slaves and received very little compensation for their work. In his book, Blackman writes, quote, This thinking held that the system of leasing prisoners contributed to the intimidation of Blacks in the era, but it was not central to it. Sympathy for the victims, however brutally they had been abused, was tempered because, after all, they were criminals. Moreover, most historians concluded that the details of what really happened couldn't be determined. Official accounts couldn't be rigorously challenged because so few of the original records of the arrests and contracts under which Black men were imprisoned and sold had survived. Yet, as I moved through one county courthouse to the next in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, I concluded that such assumptions were fundamentally flawed, end quote. He goes on to write, quote, It overlooked many of the significant dimensions of the new forced labor, including the centrality of its role in the web of restrictions put in place to suppress Black citizenship, its concomitant relationship to debt peonage and the worst forms of sharecropping, and an exponentially larger number of African Americans compelled into servitude through the most informal and tainted lower courts. End quote. Education was Gates' ticket out of a life as a sharecropper. And for many Tulsans, it was their ticket to a better existence than the one their enslaved ancestors lived. She spent decades trying to give young people opportunities to create a better future for themselves. And she spent the latter part of her life helping Black Tulsans, and really the world, understand the entirety of their heritage, the good and the bad, so they could understand what their ancestors, and by extension, they themselves, were capable of and the sacrifices that were made so that they can have an opportunity to realize their full potential. Here is Gates sharing some of her life experiences during a panel discussion celebrating books by Greenwood authors. This video was also recorded by Ross. I picked cotton from the time I was 12 years old until I left for Tuskegee for college when I was 17. This was how we earned our money, picking cotton, $3 a day. And this is the hardest work I know, pulling these bowls out of, off of these stalks, bending your back, your neck feels like it's breaking, the hot sun beaming down. It's very difficult to get this cotton out of these bowls. They prick your hands till your fingers bleed. And that is my background growing up in Preston, Oklahoma. My only contact with whites were when they threw rocks at us and called us when we were walking to school, past the white school, to a little two-room school. And I have all that in my book. But I learned some of the best lessons I ever had here, and I, that's why I call it links in my black family support system. 
the two-room school, the little outhouse that looks like it's falling down. Actually, it did fall down in 1979, <laughs> but I got this picture before it fell. <laughs> and some people told me, I'm so glad you put that picture in, because to me, segregation was just a word. But reading Miss Lucy's cookies has made people understand what it was like. And, and also the church, this little church, little Jerusalem Baptist Church, which still stands, which beckoned us to Sunday school, where we learned great lessons. Um, I could read and write before I went to school. That was the kind of community I grew up in. And I uh, heard these stories about people coming to Oklahoma, as he mentioned, all that's going to be a promised land. Black people needed that promised land more than any others. In fact, my own maternal grandparents came from Sulphur Springs, Texas. They were descendants of slaves who worked the Brazos Bottom plantations near Dallas. My grandfather witnessed the lynching of his best friend by Klansman <coughs> in 1918. He and his friend were just riding through, had done nothing wrong, but the Klan was mad and they were going to make an example of the first two blocks, they, first blocks they saw. Just like that crazy group in Los Angeles nearly beat this white man to death because they wanted to just make an example. My grandfather and this man had done nothing wrong. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were riding horses through thickets and the clan saw only one. My grandfather held back, was very quiet, didn't make a sound, and he saw them string up and lynch his best friend. If they had known he was hiding, he would have been lynched also. When the clan left, my grandfather went home, gathered up his family, and said, we're going to Oklahoma. I cannot stay another day in Texas. And he didn't. They came to Oklahoma, where they had some relatives who had heard it was a promised land. And my grandfather never set foot in Texas again. That, made, that incident made him a bitter man. He never liked whites from that. I'll never trust them. Didn't trust God. He never set foot in a church. My grandmother, very religious, all the children religious. But my grandfather didn't believe there could be a God that would let things like that happen. So it really ruined his life. Uh, I have always heard that kind of history. My other set of grandparents came with a caravan of 13 blacks out of uh, uh, Lot, Texas, a little place near Marshall. The Piles were on, you know, one of them, that group. And I see my dear friend Rosemary, who taught with me at Edison. Her family was one of the families in that wagon train. My grand mother told me how the men would, would get whatever they'd eat that night was what the men would shoot that day. Whatever they came across, squirrel, rabbit, raccoon, possum, and of course they had dry goods with them. And uh, if they come across fruit, there were arches or trees, they would have that fruit. And she, at night they would make their beds underneath the wagons or in the wagons, spread quilts over saplings. And I just sat as a little girl hearing those stories, and I loved history. And I've been reading and writing ever since. And I wrote these two books because I wanted our story told. Uh, it hasn't been told properly yet, but it's a lot better than it used to be. It used to be we were not even mentioned. I taught history 22 years at Edison High School, and the books I taught Oklahoma history from did not mention had a paragraph on Tulsa, didn't mention the race riot at all. Perhaps the most single significant event that ever happened in this state was not mentioned at all. So I wrote my own history books. And I, uh, I was teaching during the time when multiculturalism was getting, at least getting recognized. But still, to this day, people view 
multicultural or diversity or learning about others, what I call the casserole theory. <laughs> and when I talk to groups, and I talk all the time to little five-year-olds on the floor, to 100-year-olds in, in a senior citizen's home, but my story is always the same. I use wit and humor and my love of history, my love of people of all races, and the need for diversity. It is not like casserole. Now, when I was a little girl, grandma used to give us all a dose of castor oil in the spring. Like clockwork. <laughs> she said our blood was thick and, it, and we needed purifying and cleaning out and it was going to taste nasty going down but it would make us feel better in the long run. That's the way people view diversity. Uh, businesses will call out the diversity expert after someone has filed a harassment suit or a bias suit and they'll have all kinds of works. I've attended some. My husband works for PSO. I went to some and they'll bring in the police commissioner and and it's like the casserole theory, you know. It's not going to be pleasant, but it might do a little bit of good. Actually, I find diversity just fascinating. And the way I learn to love people, not to see color, but to see people, is when my husband, I went to Tuskegee, that's me at 17 in Tuskegee, worked my way through college, Booker T. Washington's home right there. And I, I had to learn to get away from Oklahoma, but that was another world. Married my husband who graduated from Tuskegee, got a second lieutenant bars, and there began the 12 moves in 14 years, five babies, four born in England. And I had to learn to love and trust other people. I was not in Oklahoma anymore. I was not with this little small black community that had nurtured me. My husband was an officer. Often we were the only blacks in his squadron, sometimes the only black in this particular housing area. Or in England, we'd be the only black in this whole little town, like we were in the London suburb. And so I had to learn to love and trust people, and it's the best thing that ever happened. I totally knew that that castrol theory was not right, <laughs> that it is fun, it is helpful, it is godlike, it is democratic for all of us to love each other and get along. Will Black Wall Street ever be restored to the thriving community it was during its glory days? We don't know. There are, however, a number of people who are heavily invested in its future and spearheading revitalization efforts that could help that question become a reality. One of them being State Senator Kevin Matthews. Matthews is the chair of the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. You've heard me mention it at the beginning of each and every episode. Well, here is Matthews explaining what the organization does, what it hopes to do, and what the future of Tulsa could be. Senator Kevin Matthews, Senate District 11 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Senator Kevin Matthews, you are the chair of the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, correct? Yes, I am. Okay. Could you just tell me how the commission came to be and how it happened, especially after so many decades in which the Tulsa Race Massacre and at the time what was known as the Tulsa Race Riot really was not talked about and really was a taboo subject? Well, in uh, about 2016, I had been working with the Greenwood Cultural Center to uh, 
try to repair and enhance some of the things that were happening there and some of the things that had been broken after state funding had not happened since 2001 for some 15 years. And as we talked about it, I started to look at how we can enhance what they were trying to do there. And a friend of mine, Dr. Lester Shaw, talked to me about cultural tourism and the fact that we were in a $1 billion deficit at the time, and, and we were looking at new ways to bring revenue, and tourism was an obvious way to do that. And then afterwards, I learned about the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C., and they were telling the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre there, and in the first two years, they had over 5 million visitors, and I thought, why would they be having Oklahomans flying there when it was our story? And it was a great opportunity to not only bring tourism here to educate, but to honor those victims and survivors and have the history taught in our state. And that's how I came up with the idea. And so I formed a commission, a bipartisan commission of every elected official, community representatives, past and present elected persons, and we formed a commission around being able to tell this story here in our state. And even in a conservative environment, we realized that not only the education, but the tourism that it would bring with the uniqueness of African-American history that had not been told in our state turned out to be a great idea. And now we have a capital campaign that's nearing the $20 million mark and moving towards the $30 million mark to tell the story in an effective way. And we have a curriculum, www.tulsa2021.org, where you can learn about how to get that curriculum uh, that's taught in schools now across the state. We have a teacher's institute where Tulsa Public Schools has piloted it for two years, and now we want to take that statewide to teach teachers how to teach this. And so that's how it began, and we've had a lot of momentum since. Tell me about the Teachers Institute, because one of the issues, right, is not only that the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre isn't widely taught in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, but it's not widely taught anywhere across the country. And so can you tell me how the Teachers Institute is working to change this? Well, Dr. Carlos Hill at Oklahoma University in African American Studies has agreed to teach that along with Hannibal Johnson, a local historian. And so what we've done is created a curriculum along with the State Department of Education. And Dr. Hill is standardizing the way that that's being taught. And so the interesting thing is this was Tulsa's dirty secret. There are people in Tulsa that grew up in Tulsa, including myself, that didn't have this in our classrooms here. And that's why it's so important for us to tell this story because the people that did this, part of them were part of the government, law enforcement, et cetera, that were embarrassed that this would happen. The largest massacre of Americans upon Americans and one of the few, if not only, stories in history where incendiary bombs were dropped on American citizens by other American citizens. And so some were embarrassed about that. The others, African-Americans that were affected, were threatened. Many of them left and many others thought it'd be be- it thought it best not to talk about. And I thought it's just the opposite today. It's the only way that you're going to have reconciliation and 
and move past the problem is to admit it openly and then look at ways to turn that tragedy into triumph. And that's what we're trying to do. So with that, you are from Tulsa, is that correct? Yes, I grew up here in Tulsa. Yes, I I live one block off of Greenwood, the area that was affected today. Gotcha. So can you tell me how, if at all, Tulsa has changed in the last couple of decades since people have begun to sort of be more vocal and honest and open about the Tulsa race massacre? And by that, I mean, we know that Oklahoma and Tulsa has a history of racism. I've been told by people who live there now that they still feel that there is an element of that. But do you think at least bringing this story to the consciousness of people from your own community is helping to heal that community at all? Well, as you said, there's a lot of angst in Tulsa. Law enforcement and relations in the Black community have been strained, you know, about Terrence Crutcher, Monroe Bird, and others that were. Eric Harris killed with his hands handcuffed behind his back. Monroe Bird killed while driving away from law enforcement. And Terrence Crutcher killed with his hands up. All unarmed Black people killed just in the last five years causes a tremendous strain. But the hopefulness, it has to do with the current mayor, the current governor, and others that are willing to support telling this story financially. Uh, We've been able to do this across party lines. U.S. Senator Lankford, a conservative white U.S. Senator, telling this story on the U.S. Senate floor and partnering with me to put this curriculum out. The governor and uh, conservative legislature partially funding this effort with $1.5 billion in the budget this past year. The the city of Tulsa and the mayor are committing $5.3 million to the effort. That is inspirational that we have people in leadership that are courageous enough to invest in this, whether it just be because of the tourism, because of the history, or because of the goal of reconciliation. It is inspirational. I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago. It has happened today. And so we're hopeful that that is the first part of reconciliation is to acknowledge and support uncovering this dirty secret. So that was actually going to be my next question is, why do you think now? Why do you think there's so much support or rather so much more support for uncovering Tulsa's, quote, dirty secret now, as opposed to 10 years ago, as opposed to 20 years ago, as opposed to 30 years ago? Well. Now is when the National African American Museum of History and Culture has done it, and it's been proven that five million people are interested in it. Now is the time that we have realized that tourism is the third largest revenue driver. We hope that it's to do the right thing, but we also know that there's an economic advantage and benefit to it. And so for the Black community, it's a 100-year anniversary of this issue and we want to commemorate, but for the non-African-American community, there are some business benefits and other benefits. And I think that all of those things converging together allows for this type of thing to move forward. Where does Tulsa go from here and how does the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission help it get there? Well, where it goes from here, I'm, I'm talking to you from one of our universities on Greenwood right now and talking about how the institutions in 
the African-American community can help to solve problems in the African-American community. And so where we go from here is to have the courage to continue to do the right thing and not make this just ceremonial, not just talk to me now because I'm African-American and this is Black History Month, not to talk to us as a people just because we're coming up on this centennial, but to do the right thing because it benefits us all to work together and bring everybody into the tent. I think that sometimes when we have the national climate that we have, the us versus them mentality, that's dangerous uh, and it's counterproductive. And uh, our hope is that we continue uh, this inclusiveness and we continue to dialogue about things such as this and not repeat the past, but move forward. And as I said, we hope that our hope is that we turn terrible tragedies like this into triumph by the willingness to be open-minded and talk, have the tough conversations and the courageous conversations, and after that, be able to implement solutions. And what do you think it's going to take for there to be a national effort and national movement beyond the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre for the history and the truth of the Tulsa Race Massacre to be told in schools across the country as part of American history curriculum? Well, you know, if you've been paying attention, we've had many other presidential candidates come through Tulsa. We've had one just name part of his presidential campaign, the Greenwood Initiative, with the African-American story in the forefront of that campaign. And now others are adopting the fact that African-Americans, we need, you know, more African-Americans have the opportunity for home ownership and to stop redlining in black communities. We need more opportunities for black business owners and entrepreneurs to double or triple the amount across this country and create opportunities to build wealth in black communities. I think that conversation is happening. It happened here and the presidential candidates are hearing it and making it part of their platform. And those types of things will push it to the forefront nationally. And hopefully whoever uh, wins the next presidential election will make it part of the national efforts uh, to address these type of issues. So we know that a lot of people who've been invested in telling the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre have said and feel that if we can tell this story and if more people can learn about it, perhaps we can prevent something similar from happening in the future. Do you think it's possible that something like the Tulsa Race Massacre can happen again? Well, I think if we continue to have a divisive type of leadership that we've seen nationally, of course. You know, we've seen what happened in Virginia. We see what's happening with communities of color from the federal level. And, you know, now we're having police officers being shot. As we said, we have people of color being killed unarmed. And so we're on the verge of something like that happening now if we don't continue to address it and address solutions. I certainly believe it's a possibility if we don't do what we're trying to do here in Tulsa is become an example for reconciliation and having the courage to address the issues head on and stop having the us versus them mentality that we see uh, happening on the national level. 
Is there any other initiative or point about the commission that you want to make that I didn't ask you about? Well, all I want to say is that while we look for support and encouragement from across the country, again, we want to make sure that people go to www.tulsa2021.org to support and learn about this effort. And we hope that May 31st and June 1st of 2021, people converge from around the world to participate in this dialogue. And we hope that this becomes a national trend and it starts the conversation for better race relations across the country. I mentioned earlier that all stories have a beginning, middle, and an end. This is true, usually. Tulsa's story, however, is still being written. For many years, Black Tulsans did not necessarily have the power or influence to construct their own narratives. Others constructed it for them in such a way that worked to support the subjugation of the Black population in Tulsa. Several decades ago, Black Tulsans who survived the Tulsa Race Massacre began to more publicly tell their stories, to give their account of what horrors they experienced. And in doing so, they began to change the narrative about the massacre. A narrative that first tried to blame the massacre on its victims, and then later tried to write its existence out of history altogether. Thanks to many researchers, journalists, writers, historians, videographers, scholars, elected officials, community leaders, and members who have been documenting and uplifting the experiences of the massacre survivors, we now have a more clear understanding of what happened because they could finally shape their own narratives that spoke to the totality of their life experiences. I wanted to use the first-hand accounts of some of the survivors to elevate their voices as it relates to the massacre, which had been virtually silenced for so long. I also wanted to elevate the voices of some of the professionals and the people who've been telling the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre for years, particularly from the perspective of the survivors. And I wanted to give each and every listener the chance to learn about this history and determine what it means for them. I hope I accomplished those goals with this series. And I thank each and every one of the many, many listeners of this podcast for allowing me to use my voice to tell this story. <laughs>